0: Nick Brown. He's been the high school projectionist for the A.V. Club for over nine semesters and can be heard nightly at the theater talking loudly in the row behind you about the film being screened. And now they're joining forces. Ladies and gentlemen, Rick and Nick Talk Flicks.
1: Well, we are not costumed like a lot of people I saw at the theaters this past weekend, but we are here. Welcome to Rick and Nick Talk Flicks. Sponsored by the Bemidji Theater, I'm Joel Hoover. I'm Dave Brooks. And we have both been to the Bemidji Theater in recent days. It's on Highway 2, just down from the Bemidji Airport. Check it out. Head on in there. Check out those new seats, those theater rooms. They have upgraded the surround sound, the projection, the seats, of course. It's all been updated, and it's all ready to welcome you. $5.50 movie nights on Tuesdays. They are terrific to come out for as well. And then, of course, the uh, student nights as well that they've got going on Thursdays, I believe, when they have those great nights to be able to come to the Bemidji Theater. Dave and I have had a great time going there in recent days.
0: I love those reclining new leather seats they've got because the leather rubs on the leather. And so when you get a bunch of people sitting in their seats and they hit the button, it sounds like a collective fart. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> but you know, it's just the seats, and it's everyone gets a kick out of it. So you know, it's movie time, and when it's the movie's over, they got to get the seats back. So <laughs> it's just kind of a fun, unintended. Yeah. <laughs> so um, we a lot of times we'll have a theme going into the show, and tonight we're not necessarily really going to do that. We are. I don't know what we'll end up calling this episode when we finally put it up online, but. Uh, Maybe just movie coffee talk. We're having a cup of coffee. We're just kind of talking. We kind of know generally where we're going to go, but I wouldn't call it a theme. We're just talking about two guys that are talking about some of what's going on right now, kind of topical stuff, and we're just going to let the chips fall where they may. But that being said... Uh, one of the big things right now is the Barbenheimer uh, Extravaganza is a That's good way to put That's
1: probably it. going to be the main item of discussion today, but, but there's going to be more that is going to branch off of it.
0: We're not going to give reviews, but there might be some spoilers forthcoming. So we just kind of want to lay down some preparation. If you haven't seen – we haven't seen Barbie yet, but we've seen Oppenheimer. Oppenheimer being is that it's a historical movie and – extremely accurate is, you know, you can read a history book and many people already have. And one of the things um, about this movie is that it fills in a lot of gaps. You know, it's I knew a fair amount about the Manhattan Project, but this fills in much detail, some of which that I didn't know. Uh, which is really interesting. And then you kind of read up on it a little more after you see the movie. You're like, yeah, that's actually, that's the way it happened. So in that regard, there could be spoilers, but in this case, you almost need to call it, we're going to talk actual history, and that's pretty much what the movie is. So be prepared. If you are don't knowing much about what Oppenheimer, who he was in the Manhattan Project, it might come up during the course of the podcast. So be prepared.
1: Worth mentioning, too, Dave and I have also both been to see mission impossible dead reckoning part one that may come up today as well just because we've both been to that movie we've got a topic that we will probably discuss for some time related to mission impossible during this episode as well so again just come ready be prepared yeah this is kind of a classic Movie podcast slash podcast topic when it comes to current events is that talking man? Yeah, we're just talking. We're riffing. We're riffing on what's been going on with with some of these most recent topics. So come ready for all of that. But we felt that this needed to be done because we are coming off a historic box office weekend, and that is not hyperbole. That's just the flat out truth. We just had the fourth largest box office weekend in movie history it is the largest since COVID-19 as well which for Dave and I who have championed the movie going experience and the theater experience we're celebrating we are really celebrating because this is was there cake did I not get cake we're might, celebrating well we might as well have some because this was this was a great weekend if you believe in Going to the theater and going to the theater to have a movie going experience. It was an experience this past weekend. Well, not just for the seats. Yeah, not just for the seats. It was, and it was really, really cool. It wasn't yeah. just an internet meme, it wasn't just a trend on social media. This became a real thing. Let me give a few of the numbers here we'll start with Barbie which won the box office at the weekend as expected not, ex- not, a, not a surprise what was not expected was the number 162 million dollars that ended up being the final number it beat the domestically pro- yes domestically and that beat the projection of the projection it, it was it was absurd like it
0: made 350 million worldwide yes. that is one of the biggest opening weekends ever. And it is to say nothing that it's the highest grossing movie ever released with a female director. Ever. Yes, I was going to get to that. Yeah, I'm sorry, I didn't that, want to steal well, your Thunder.
1: No, that was perfect. Yeah, because I was just to, about to get to that. An enormous triumph for Greta Gerwig and for everybody who put the time in to making Barbie. Great reviews. People loved the the neon color of it all. They they loved. As far as, like, what it tried to get into as far as Barbie meets real life. Now, of course, we don't have a lot of details on that, but I know enough to know it's a Barbie meets real life kind of thing that comes with that. And and rave reviews for Margot Robbie's performance. Ryan Gosling has gotten terrific reviews for his performance as Ken. And people turned out in droves to go see Barbie hugely successful. Uh, Mattel has got to be just beyond, it's beyond their wildest dreams here, I think, with all of this. And how about all the people turning up to the, the movie, Dave, dressed in whatever Barbie costume they could muster in their imagination to go and show up to watch the movie? I mean, I'm sure you saw that at the theater. I saw that at the theater, people showing up dressing in their favorite Barbie costume or whatever idea they could come up with for it to go see the movie. It has been an experience.
0: You know, it's funny. I just saw Oppenheimer yesterday. I haven't seen Barbie. Uh, My wife, funny enough, she had some dolls when she was a kid, but she had horse dolls and He-Man action figures. Yep. So this isn't really my wife's thing either, and that's what a lot of folks are doing. They they both want to see both. I'm not drawn to see Barbie, but I know I will, and when I do, I know I'm going to like it because I like that kind of humor. I have a feeling, I hate to say it because we're sponsored by a theater, it might not be seen in our household until it comes to the household on streaming. I hate to say it, but my wife is kind of the driving force on that. So that's just kind of the, the dynamics of a marriage. And, it and it's de- just your preference. Dep- it yeah. depends on the household, and that's just kind of the way it is. But one of these nights it'll be, hey, honey, such and such is streaming on such and such all right, and then it'll be one of those where, you know, I didn't think I was going to like it, but I really liked that. I had to struggle to get her to see the first Avatar. I didn't want to see blue people, little and pink people. I didn't think that was going to be good, but not really good. I really liked that movie. I think Barbie will be the same thing. So that is one of those where I've not heard from anybody that saw it and hated it. Now, maybe, you know, it's not my thing, but I really kind of liked it. I don't think I have seen see it again, but I really liked it. I haven't heard from anybody that said they just outright didn't like it unless maybe they just didn't see it at all. Nah, 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 nah,
1: nah. Yeah, people were entertained. Bottom yeah. line, they were very entertained with going to see Barbie and it worked. The the marketing all of the campaign that went on as far as be, going to see Barbie, it it worked in, in to enormous success.
0: I love, from what I've found out, and a lot of times if I really want to see a movie, I don't want to look into it at all. Until the movie's out, I want to be ignorant and go in and just let it unfold. I don't want to think about where it might be going. I want to avoid spoilers. and I just want to watch it unfold and then I'll read up on it and then I will watch all the trailers that I didn't see because those can spoil things. But since I'm not really Chasing Barbie, I have seen a few clips because I'm not, you know, licking my chops to go see it. But what I have seen, I really like. There's one of the things I didn't, you know. Again, we're talking a couple of minor spoilers, so. But this I don't think is going to spoil, spoil anything. Helen Mirren. Is the narrator in this movie? It has a narrator and it is extremely uh, meta in that it is just ridiculously self aware. And I'm paraphrasing, I'm probably not going to get the dialogue quite right, but there's a point where Margot Robbie is Barbie is making some kind of, I feel ugly today or something like that. And all of a sudden you hear the narrator. It should be noted that Margot Robbie is wholly underqualified to identify as ugly given that it's Margot Robbie, you know? And that's a line in the movie, you know? So that's the they kind of humor. Say- she says, "Margo Robbie." <laughs> so it's extremely self-aware, subserv. I mean, it is. It's. It's not what you think it is. You do not need to. Oh, I grew up on Barbie. I love Barbie. That's awesome. You'll love this movie. I grew up on GI Joe, and I have no interest in Barbie. That's fine. You're probably also gonna love this movie because the humor is humor is humor. If it, good is good. And I've seen movies that really aren't my thing. I've watched Downton Abbey. It's not my thing. Did I enjoy it? Yeah. Am I going to be the driving force to watch more? Probably not. But when it comes on again, I will enjoy it. So that's it is what it is. And what it is is undeniably good. Very meta. Very, very very meta.
1: Now, the other half of what has become the internet sensation and one of the big internet trends of the year, and one of the biggest, I'd say, all-time movie-wise, is Oppenheimer, which, of course, we talked about our previous episode when we discussed Christopher Nolan, the director of the movie, and there was a lot of hype that had been building for Oppenheimer coming in anyway, just because it's a Christopher Nolan project. He's got lots of fans, myself included, who really like to go see his movies. So there was already excitement for that, but then you remember, Dave, back in, I think it was May, when you and I recorded the episode, Looking Ahead at the Summer, and this I circled your big one. well, I circled July 21st on the calendar and I was like, "Dave, this is a rather strange occurrence that we have. We have two enormous movies, two enormous tentpole movies with great directors helming them, coming out on the same day. How's that going to work? Are they going to be going head to head?" Well, no, then the internet took these polar opposite movies with one being about a a doll Come to life and uh, in all of its neon color and bright lights and fun, and then you have a very serious topic from history: the atomic bomb, the searing
0: bright light, and its
1: creator. Oh, yes, searing bright you light.
0: Like what I did there? I did.
1: Yes, and the the dark tones of it all with rated R. Then as well for Oppenheimer. They're going to be out on the same weekend. How's this going to work? Well, what it turned into was, of course, then Barbenheimer. And it was to the benefit of both movies, and they both leaned into it. And Oppenheimer, which was tentatively slated at about a 50 to $55 million release, I think is what people were looking at, opened at $82.5 million, the largest non-Batman opening weekend in Christopher Nolan's directorial career.
0: Now hold on, we got to take a, a, a minute here. No, wait a minute. You're seeing 150 or whatever the number was for Barbie and 80 for that's a huge drop. You got to keep in mind the accessibility here. You got one movie that's PG and it's all pink. PG thirteen, PG thirteen, very accessible. Now you got a rated R movie. So if you're 17 or younger, you're technically not supposed to be going in. It's of a very harsh subject material, and it's kind of being. I don't know if I would agree with it, but I heard it when it was being marketed. It almost comes and plays like a horror movie. I don't know if I would go quite that far. Thriller. Elements.
1: Elements Maybe, of
0: it. Maybe. Thriller, yeah, I would go with that. But horror, no. That's got a whole other vibe that I wasn't really picking up. But uh, it's just not that accessible. So to get that kind of turnout for that kind of a movie that's not so accessible, that is in itself a huge achievement.
1: Well, and the bigger reason... Why it's so big is because it's a three-hour-long movie. That too, it's a long movie, so that's going to mean fewer opportunities to see it in the theater because there, there's not going to be as many show times. I mean, I looked at that for the Bemidji theater. Barbie, you had no end of of show times that you could pick. You had to pick and choose a little bit more with Oppenheimer because that's three hours, and yet people were traveling long distances just to go see this movie in either IMAX, which I did. I traveled to the cities to see it in IMAX and then saw it here in, in town as well. And if you wanted to go even further, IMAX 70 millimeter. How going, far was
0: that? And you looked it up.
1: Closest one, I believe, was Grand Rapids, Michigan. <laughs> that was the closest. And I was like, well... Grant I think I'm just going to have to say I can't do it this time around. Now I had seen Interstellar in 70 millimeter IMAX, and that was that was incredible.
0: weren't you home in Philly for that though?
1: It, well, I was in PA. Okay. Yeah, I was I was home for that. That was when I was in college, okay. so accessing that was much easier. But people did that. People traveled crazy long distances to be able to see the movie as quote unquote it was intended to be seen, and and they were willing to. And it. It ended up turning into an enormous opening regardless. And I, th- I think on the whole, Universal, Christopher Nolan, everyone associated with Oppenheimer, they were delighted with the opening weekend and the pool. And of course, critically, it has been getting rave reviews. It has been, there's tons of Oscar buzz about it already. Killian Murphy at the center of it as J. Robert Oppenheimer. It's, it is his story. Oh, absolutely. It is his story front I think he's and center. In, I
0: think he's in every frame of the movie, or at least in every scene. If they cut away from him, fine. But he's in every scene of the entire movie, I believe. Not, no, no, Not I, 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 quite. There's exceptions that's right, there. That's right. I, you got me. The, the Louis Strauss. The Strauss parts. Yeah. yeah. Okay, you got well, me.
1: Well, which is a nice bridge into what I'm going to get to in a moment. Yeah. But Killian Murphy is going to be in the running for best actor. He may have just made himself the front runner. Yeah. And Robert Downey Jr., yeah. as as Louis Strauss, who said that this was the best movie he's ever been part of. He looks like he's going to be in the running for best supporting actor. I think he's a shoe-in
0: for a nominee. They're both shoe-ins for nomination and they've got a boy, a good strong chance to get in. This when we get around to 2024 Oscars, this is going to be front and center. This is one of those movies where when the Oscars do come around, I never heard of half these movies. You will have heard of this one. Yes. And everybody in it, and oh my goodness. And I'll tell you what, that's another amazing thing, all the faces that show up in this. And some of those, I don't think I'm going to spoil. Oh, it's a who's
1: who. But
0: some of them are in fairly small blink and you'll miss it parts, but they're significant people, significant names, significant faces that probably just like, I don't care if I'm the third scientist on the left, put me in there. And so it's, I mean, like Oscar winners show up in little teeny parts. So it's I'm not going to give those away, and let's let that open itself. Yeah. Uh, the one thing I will say, though, and I won't say who he is in the movie, but Josh Hartnett, we haven't seen him in forever. Yeah. He's kind of dropped out of Hollywood, and apparently he's making his way back, and he does it in great fashion. So that's the only one I'm going to kind of lift the curtain on, and it's not a cameo. He's got a decent role in it. And it took me a few scenes. was like, why does he... It's not Jan Michael Vincent, and that's an 80s reference if you know who that was, Airwolf, but he kind of looked like him. And then it hit me, that's Josh Hardnett, and he's got a pretty decent role.
1: You he know, did a great job. Another one a lot of people were pointing out was Josh Peck when he showed up yeah, as well. Yeah. The one that I pointed out to a few friends of mine, and I thought he was terrific in his limited role, was Alden Ehrenreich. Yeah,
0: he He really was. He was
1: very good in his role. You may know him as Young Han Solo from Solo, the Star Wars story, but I thought he was excellent in his role, his limited role that he was in.
0: I mean, all these small roles uh, are absolutely maximized. And you're not looking at anybody, to say the least of which, Killian Murphy or Emily Blunt or any of these, that you're like, oh, that's so-and-so. You totally buy in to the character, and it's not like, boy, that's like that's the scarecrow from Batman Begins. No, that's Robert J Oppenheimer, and you're believing it. And it just you just don't think about who's in the role. You're just so drawn into all of it.
1: Well, I thinned out Killian Murphy as well. He lost so much weight, and you see that, like what he's wearing, like the clothes just kind of hang off of him. But that's how J Robert Oppenheimer was, and he. He committed hard to the role because he's at the center of it. They wrote the script in first person and you can see why now because this is Oppenheimer's story and everyone else who's who's part of it is just kind of surrounding it with the exception of Louis Strauss. But you have to see the movie to see how that plays out and to know how that goes. It's, it's a tremendous movie. I didn't quite like it everything with it but it's it was phenomenal and it was really really good so there's a there's a rousing recommendation now of course bear in mind the r-rated nature of it that's true you have to keep that in mind as well going in but it was and it,
0: it did phenomenal business as well so but if you're going into an R-rated movie, and a lot of times it'll tell you generally what it is. There's nudity. There's you know subject matter. It is about the development of the atomic bomb. One of the things they didn't show was you know gratuitous gore. They could have shown you know bodies, whether they're recreated or actual photos following Hiroshima or Nagasaki. They didn't, and that is something. It was a lot of restraint, quite honestly. But there are some other things, and it's something that comes up every so often that, you know, this is part of what it was back in the, uh, generally the 1930s and 40s is when this movie takes place because it's not just about the Manhattan Project. And the 50s. It, oh, and the 50s too, yeah. This is during the, the Red Scare. So communism is a huge thing in any movie really set in that era. And was he part of the Communist Party? Was he not? And that is one of those things that can get kind of tricky and testy and especially even in this era but it's what it was yeah, So they're, they're jason, not pulling punches. jason
1: clark's role yeah. comes to the the forefront in that in that regard but so what we got then was this tour de force that was barbenheimer now there were other movies that did pretty well at the box office this past weekend of course it was the second weekend of mission impossible dead reckoning part one sound of freedom has been doing really well as well so all of it added up to the fourth largest box office weekend ever, the largest since covid, which we're celebrating. How did Barbenheimer work, Dave? How did how did this happen that we got something that should have been polar opposites bouncing off of each other but became two things that came together to make a tremendous weekend for Hollywood during a time where Hollywood is kind of taking its lumps right now.
0: That's a very good question, and I don't know if I've got the answer yet. I do know that initially when when Nolan found out that both movies were going to come out at the same time, initially he wasn't really pleased. He kind of wanted the stage to himself. Something has happened over the last little while. I mean, you can think of any other example in history where this big movie and that big movie, and they all have fast food tie-in commercials and toys and video games that they're battling against one another. Well, who's going to club the other's brains in better and you, there's no reason that that wasn't going to be the case for this because it was such a mismatch. I mean, you got a hard, gritty R-rated versus the world of pink in Barbie that just, it just there's no way you could stitch them together. It's like trying to sew metal onto fabric. It's just, it does, it's not natural. But it, for some weird reason, they came up with the perfect Mad Max outfit and made it work. And I still don't understand how that worked and how they found some natural ground to kind of bounce off of one another i think this is one of those you almost need to get some time to figure out well how did why did but they lifted one another up and they were there for each other and even the cast of barbie were sending love to oppenheimer and vice versa i i've never seen anything like this before and boy did it pay off people were buying tickets in advance for both movies which would you see first
1: That's the key. Yeah. What what were you going to see first here in this double feature? A lot of different ways to look at it, but I think part of the lesson here is you can never underestimate the unpredictability of the internet. Yeah, You can never underestimate the unpredictability of the internet. How do people latch on to a debate of the dress is these colors. No, the dress is these colors. There's one example from, from years ago. Like, how does the internet latch on to these things? It, it just happens sometimes. That That's the way that pop culture can be. I don't know. Like, with the studios picking this weekend, I don't know. Did they have any consideration to, like, for instance, with Barbie? I, I believe that was through Warner Brothers. Yes, um, Nolan's old old production company he had worked with for so long. Like, did anybody at Warner Brothers go? I don't know. We're going up against our old boy Chris Nolan here let's this stick weekend. It to him. Should we? Uh, yeah, or let's stick it to him, or should we think about another weekend? Or on the other side with with Universal? Hey, we're going up against a great cast and a great director and Greta Gerwig and a great just a concept, a brand, Barbie that so many people know so much about. Maybe we should just clear out from this weekend and pick out our own weekend to build our own tent pole. I don't know what those discussions looked like as far as keeping it the same weekend like they did, but they did. They went ahead and did it. And it set the stage then for people just to have fun with the polar opposite nature of of the movies and roll with it with the funny memes that I saw out there of mishmashing together the the two posters or finding way like the, the plumes of pink dust that I saw out there that that I that existed on the internet scape. I, I just don't know. The, the internet can be really surprising like that sometimes and can be really amusing like that sometimes. And you put two polar opposites in there like this and you suddenly get some creative people who find a way to put their two titles together. Two simple titles, by the way. One word. Barbie. One word. Oppenheimer, there's no Indiana Jones and the Dial of Destiny, where you're, you're stretching it out with a very known entity in there, or Mission Impossible, Dead Reckoning, Part 1, two simple titles, finding a way to put them together, I mean, it, it all, it just became a perfect storm of this is the way the internet can be.
0: You know putting those two movies in the same weekend to a degree makes sense. It's counter programming you know not that I would say Oppenheimer that's a great way to put It's necessarily a masculine male driven movie. I mean obviously it's about a giant explosion, but that's what the whole movie's building toward. It's not shoot 'em ups and it's a thriller, if anything. if I had to give it a particular uh, genre, I'd say it's a thriller. it's a historical documentary historical thriller.
1: epic epic yeah.
0: drama um, but a thriller. And Barbie is not, you know, so it's not necessarily a male-centric movie, but Barbie certainly is a female-driven movie. So who's going to decide, let's go see Oppenheimer? you think it might be the guys. And when they were figuring out what what movie's going to come out on what weekend, they don't have ratings that far out, but you know it's going to be an intense movie given the subject matter. Well, let's put something in that'll run counter. So those that don't want to go see the, the, the nuclear war drama can go see something that's not. And so I get that, where that comes from. Sometimes some things happen to kind of you know riff a little further off of what Hoove was saying. Some things naturally lend themselves to be mocked, to be celebrated, to be enjoyed, to be uh, you know stirred up into something else. And maybe it was just the nature of you cannot get more opposite than nuclear mushroom clouds, the very first that ever dropped, and then the two that ended World War II, and pink everything, Barbie, Dream House, Malibu they're so far apart malibu is nowhere near los alamos it's just that was a joke by the way it's uh it so it almost like well i guess we're gonna go see nuclear war or we're gonna see the pink doll it's it how far apart could they be and maybe that alone was enough to get it started i don't have a good answer for this maybe someday we will figure it out or maybe it's not to be figured out just enjoy what it's doing because it is a It's really something that I don't know if I've ever seen anything quite like this. Um, Maybe Phantom Menace when that came out. I remember the teaser for Austin Powers, if you see one movie this year. And this was the Austin Powers trailer. See Star Wars. If you see two movies this year, see Star Wars and then see Austin Powers. And that was the trailer. I mean, that's the closest I can come with where one paid homage to some other movie that it was going to be competing against. I've never seen anything quite like it. I think a sidebar one of
1: this is if you put together really good marketing, it's going to pay off. I mean, Barbie, it was just it was all sitting out there for the marketing campaign that would come with this. Very easy when you have when you have a doll like Barbie at the center of it, when you have all that comes with that product, but but they found a great way to be able to market it and have fun with it and make it a relentlessly fun and entertaining marketing campaign. Oppenheimer went its own route when it came to the marketing. Beginning last year, with there was an there was a place you could go on YouTube, I think through Universal's page, where they had a running countdown to the the date where, in advance of the movie, it would be the anniversary of the Trinity test itself, and it was a continuous clock, and it was a continuous showing of July their first 16th, teaser, isn't
0: it? I yeah, think.
1: it was a it was a continuous running teaser trailer over and over loop with. Every time on it, it would show the time at the bottom to when the Trinity test took place, like the anniversary of it. Stuff like that that they did. And then the marketing campaign for that movie went all the way back to the Super Bowl, and they, they laced it through other things like March Madness and all the way up through the start of the summer. I mean, they, they hit the ground running really hard when it came to marketing, it, and I'm sure Nolan was a big part of making that happen. Plus, making it a large format, this is an event to take part in kind of thing, with IMAX. I'm sure. Have you seen the pictures of how large the IMAX film roll is that they had to make to be able to make this movie? I like, didn't see
0: the picture to but show it in IMAX. I saw the stats. If you unroll it, and I might be wrong, but I'm close to this. I think I think it was like 11 miles long. It's, it's it was 116 long. pounds. It. I mean, just the stats of the film alone, 11 miles long, 116 pounds. That's the movie. What? Yeah. Yeah. One other thing to think about that is really kind of interesting that I noticed is that Oppenheimer, this is the end of World War II. This movie is, you know, it spawns from the 30s through the 40s and into the early 50s for a lot of, say, younger film goers. I mean, this, I was born in the 70s. This, This was way before my time. I learned about, you know, what World War II was all about later in life. as I got older, so probably, you know, the 80s or 90s when I was starting to get old enough to start exploring history and things that happened that were outside of my own life. Well, the further down the road we go, now here we are in 2023, still further and further away from the source material. It won't be too long before it was 100 years ago. So a lot of times you might watch a movie about say the Vietnam War or even the first Gulf War, and you might watch with people that are like, I never heard of any of this stuff. I never heard you never heard of Walter Cronkite? No, Walter Who? It just it's absolutely foreign. Oppenheimer isn't exactly a name that for reasons in the movie that you see isn't exactly a celebrated name because as it is explored in the movie, and I won't go down the rabbit hole for the sake of this discussion point, he's not exactly a celebrated character in history for reasons that are maybe unjust. Uh, And we'll just leave that at that. But people were there because they knew it was going to be a good story, even if it's based on history, whether it takes liberties or not. And it really doesn't. It's extremely accurate. But one of the things I also noticed was I saw generational people of families together. You might get a grandfather. Uh, Maybe somebody that was a part of World War II or grew up during the atomic age of the 50s and 60s when atomic energy was something that only the sun was known for for doing. And now, all of my life, atomic energy has just kind of been the way of things. Somebody in the older end of the family talking to some younger end of the family. Now, when I was this, I had to help my dad build a bomb shelter because it did, did, and off they would go. So you get somebody in the family kind of instructing a basic background to somebody younger who has no idea what they're about to see. Robert Oppo, who? I don't know. And so you go into this movie completely naked of any understanding of what you're about to see or where the bomb came from. Man has always walked on the moon in my lifetime. There has always been an Internet for some people that are young enough. Up and who? For a lot of people that didn't grow up in this era, but you're finding across the boards, regardless of where they came from, a real appreciation for what they did see when they did see the movie, whether it maybe changed your perspective on the man, uh, the event. It's a very controversial decision to drop the atomic bomb in World War II to this day. And we dropped it twice. And should we have done it? Should we not have done it? Who's responsible? Who's responsible for it? Was it Oppenheimer or was it President Truman that made the decision to do it and to do it twice? And all of this stuff comes up. Who's responsible for the
1: escalation and all of that? And that's... The people at the center of that had to grapple
0: with that, which is part of the movie. You know, and one thing, just kind of a sidebar, and I mentioned this off the air before we started recording, when I I went to college at Bemidji State, and there was a professor there, and he's passed away a couple years ago, but he was really an interesting guy and a very amazing guy. Uh, His name was Bob Scriba, and he was the head of the theater theater department for Bemidji State. He grew up literally in the ashes of, I want to say it was Hiroshima, but it could have been Nagasaki, I forget. Uh, my very first quarter, when I went to BSU, they were on quarters, not semesters. And fall quarter, I had to have a lib ed class, and it had to be something with uh, art, something artistic, and it was theater 101, and Bob had taught it. And there was one day where he sat the people down and kind of had a quick, people had heard about, were, were you really part of the, yes, he was really there. They came out of the house, and to hear him tell it, Um, And I'm not going to get the details right on this story because I wasn't there and I wasn't my story to tell. I heard the story one time and I was kind of like, wait, what? Literally the blast zone from where it had hit pretty much stopped in the street right in front of his house. I mean, his house was completely destroyed. How he survived the radiation? Don't know. But he was there. Uh, I want to say it was Hiroshima. But to know somebody who's from there, it's a lot easier to meet somebody who had a grandpa that was in Pearl Harbor because that's the American side. You don't, in northern Minnesota, run into a whole lot of Japanese. And to run into somebody who was part of the, the atomic bomb is something, and so that puts a human face on things. Here's this guy that was a really cool guy. I mean, he could have grown up hateful and resentful of America for killing the people around him, destroying his neighborhood. And I get that. I know a lot of Americans that are still norked to the Japanese because of World War II. But here was a guy that just embraced life and love, and was an amazing guy. And he, to, to some minor degree, touched my life in a way that when you start to realize exactly how these all all these dots connect. Is amazing. So I gotta give a shout out to that a little bit. To have on the most minute level possible, some kind of a personal connection to the atomic bombings of Japan and then tie it into the movie. It kind of makes things a little more real.
1: Yeah, it magnifies the history that you're seeing on the screen, which brings me to I think the the other big lesson that we have from what do we learn from Barbenheimer and how this all happened. And that goes this goes back to something you and I have discussed many times over, Dave. If you have a great idea and you have great execution of putting that idea on the big screen, people will come. People will come and check it out. And I I think it sure helps that Greta Gerwig and Christopher Nolan have each established themselves as directors whose projects have to be seen. If you say this is who the director is and you put their name on it, you're going to have a lot of people who want to come and check out what they have made. And that's been the case with these two movies. I, and not only that, not just these two movies, two creative and original stories. Now, I, I say original and I put quotations on them because Barbie is based off of a product. It is based off of a doll and all that has come with that. But it's being put in an original story, something new, something different that we have not I seen mean, before. In a this. very
0: subversive taste.
1: Oppenheimer is is inspired by the book that that was about J. Robert Oppenheimer, American Prometheus, and and talks of, like that book had a big part of inspiring what made this this movie possible. But this is still, and even though it is history, it is a telling like historical epics have always had a place. In movies and and they i i think will forever have a place in movies because they they tell a story from a moment in time and yet they they're doing so when it comes to adhering to history but at the same time trying to do so in a way that is going to present it on the big screen and it's it's not as if we are watching some kind of latest movie in a long running string of movies or a long running franchise this is a standalone project that's being done here that has its basis in a book. How often is that done these days? Where are you, you saying a, you
0: won't go see Oppenheimer two, the musical?
1: Oh my, Oppenheimer two, the musical. Boy, um, I don't even know. Shade more would, pink. I don't even know how you would put that together. But in, in any case, like you, you've got something that is being done that is original here. That is an original creation with directors who are very creative and being able to make this happen. And And that's and and people notice that and see that it's not just that they're getting great reviews, they're getting staggeringly good reviews and people are coming out to see it. And that lesson remains true. It remains true. And it's so good to see that with two movies that are their own creation and are not part of some franchise in some way.
0: I don't know if it's a new lesson, but maybe it's a reminder. I mean, just to.
1: I think that's what it is.
0: To pull a line from Field of Dreams, if you build it, they will come. And if you build something that's good and that people want to see and to some degree is marketed correctly, they're going to go see it. And this will segue into maybe the next thing we'll make our way into here. But, um, you know, the whole thing about. One thing I think we're seeing that is not here is really a competition. Barbie won the box office, but you're not hearing that. You're hearing about how both movies seriously overperformed as far as What people expected from them, Barbie in particular It's not a surprise that Barbie took the number one spot Because it was so accessible and everybody could go see it And it was a breezy, what, hour and 45 minutes Something like that, a little less than two hours Which is a pretty standard length movie People wanted to see it Now I get that not everybody's got such a disposable entertainment budget That they can just go and see movies Every movie that they want to see Well, we're going to go to see three movies this weekend And three next weekend And some people can do that But a lot of people can't People have got things going on Money's tight And all of these different reasons But if you really want to see it, go see it. But a lot of times people kind of get that narrative out there that this is the one weekend you get to see it. And this will also lead into our next subject. I think to a point is that you have such a limited window now to go see these movies on the big screen before they get yanked off, so they can be streaming somewhere else. But they're going to be playing for the next couple of weeks. So if you didn't see, if you got to see one or the other this weekend, you didn't have the money for it, you didn't have time to. Well, your next paycheck will be coming in this week. The movie that you didn't see this past weekend, you can go see it this next weekend because it'll be out. Plus, we're getting into August, which is a little more on the quiet side. You've got the Haunted Mansion coming out this weekend. That might be the next big thing but if that's not your thing fine go see one of the other ones that you didn't get a chance to well we had that soccer tournament that first indiana jones weekend we didn't get to see it then we did see mission impossible it was barb and it's still playing you can still go see it you know so there's that lesson too if you want to see it bad enough you will and one of the rare things were people buying tickets to go see both movies not just the same weekend but the same day the same day yeah so if you want to see it see it. Don't let some idiot voice, and it's not attached to anything other than a movie marketing machine, tell you what to or not to see. If you want to see it, go see it. End of story.
1: Now, on the flip side, you already alluded to this just a moment ago. We have a movie like Mission Impossible, Dead Reckoning. Getting very good reviews. Very, very strong reviews. Uh, Dead Reckoning Part 1, I should add. Didn't open especially strongly its opening weekend, and didn't stand a chance this past weekend. It, it dropped uh, almost 65% from last week as far as the intake that it had at the box office. Which but is it, quite a drop. It is, but it didn't even have that especially strong of an opening weekend for starters anyway. It so,
0: underperformed.
1: So the question is why? Why Why do some not hit that strongly, even if they get great reviews or are doing well like that? Why why is that the case sometimes? That's uh, that's a question that you posed, Dave, and that you've been pondering especially strongly. So why is that the case?
0: I wish I had a magic bullet answer for that simple question, but I don't know if it's that simple. But I also think that part of what I was saying is that people have a limited budget. Well, I'll see when it's on streaming. I get that. And that is absolutely a problem. And the theatrical window back in the day for the longest time – it was it, some movies might play for a long long time. I mean months in the theater. Forget about Memorial Day weekend. If it opened Memorial Day weekend, odds are pretty good it was playing on some theater somewhere Labor Day weekend. Yeah, it you had to wait forever months.
1: for the movie to get released
0: on Remember VHS? Yeah, yeah
1: waiting that long or even just DVD like you it had was, to wait it was forever about, sometimes. It
0: was about 6 months roughly. So if you had a movie coming out Memorial weekend early June, Then that would be the big Christmas present that you'd be having six months later. You know, Batman came out, I forget what date it was, but it was like early June or somewhere in there. And it was like the big, if you love this person in your family, show them you do or you'll hate them and they'll hate you forever if you don't buy them Batman. And everybody I knew got Batman on VHS because that's the way it was. And it was six months after that, about a year after it had come out in theaters, that it might be on HBO or Showtime or whatever. And even longer than that, like at least two years before you might see it on the NBC Sunday night movie, and that was just the cycle. Now you get a movie out, and already you can see people sitting that run these theaters, that run these uh, studios, rather, sit there looking at their watch, tapping their toe, that has been 15 minutes, get it out of this theater so we can get it streaming online. And it, it can't go without being mentioned. This is part of the reason, a big part of the reason, that Christopher Nolan essentially walked away from Warner Brothers and went to Universal because the day-and-date release of Tenet was a big part of that. I don't want it being released day-and-date. I want it in a theater. If you're going to put it on a streaming service and use this to launch it, people aren't going to go see it in the theaters and all the other stuff that goes with that. That's a whole other conversation. Um, I think that's part of it. I think. I mean, you can't tell me that... Uh, A brand new movie is the only way you're going to get people to get onto a streaming service. If you are, let's say Comcast, and let's just stick with uh, Comcast, they own Universal. They own uh, anything that is Comcast, that's them. That's Warner Brothers. So you see a lot of Warner Brothers movies on HBO because that's Comcast. You'll see it on Max streaming service, formerly HBO Max, because that's Comcast. It's all in-house. Uh, so what is the problem and what's the cost of having a movie that is already your movie and putting it out on your stuff on top of that? It's not like they couldn't have a Paramount movie or an old 20th century Fox movie, whether it's new ish or even an old classic, you kind of rent those, you rent the, you rent the rights to be able to show it on a streaming platform. Forget about exclusivity. If they want to have, like, let's say, the Alien franchise on 20th Century Fox streamer, that's not to say Paramount Plus couldn't have it also, because I'm not going to go buy a specific streaming service just because this is only accessible there. A window is fine, but for eternity, no. That's the dumbest thing I've ever heard in my life. But the fact that it's almost like you need to see it on streaming and you need to see it on our streamer and only on our streamer. It's been in theaters for 15 minutes. It's done now. Get it out of there. Get the next... Then you've got barren wasteland on the theaters. You're going to make your money on the big screen because that's what it's for. I pay 10 bucks for a streaming service. I don't pay extra money because such and such a movie is on there. I don't see how you're going to be able to make all your money back by putting it, demanding to get it on a streaming service that I'm already subscribed to. Make your money for that movie. Put it on the big screen and in six months, a year, whatever it is, then it shows up on that streaming but service. But why the light take for
1: Dead Reckoning? You know, go on, that's that's the big question. That know, is for, a good question. For that movie, and but it also, it's not
0: just that movie. There have been others, too. Yeah, there's been a lot of them, and it seems like I, there's not any scandal that I'm aware of. The Flash was another story. I, from what I've heard, review-wise, The Flash was actually a pretty good movie. Problem was is that the lead actor... Uh, Ezra Miller, who stars as The Flash in real life, and we've talked about this, has got some serious problems going on. And I think a lot of people were like, I don't want to support this movie if this is the guy. They didn't even march him out for any of the marketing. He showed up at the premiere with pretty much nails through his lips, so he wouldn't speak. You know, just shut up. He'd take a picture of him coming in. Get in there. Be quiet. Go away. The marketing shifted to what was supposed to be a surprise of Michael Keaton's return as Batman. They had to have something out in front and center because they couldn't put this guy's face. I don't think there's one shot in the trailer where he wasn't wearing the flash mask because they didn't want to show his face because he might look like the guy in the mug shot. And that's a big problem. And they almost didn't release the movie. And that... Uh, is kind of a problem. But when it comes to Mission Impossible, what's the scandal? And I know a lot of people that I talk to, well, are you going to go see Mission Impossible? Yeah, I don't really like Tom Cruise. Clearly, those people weren't a factor on last year's Top Gun Maverick because everybody saw that movie multiple times. It was the number one movie of 2022. So I, it can't be the Tom Cruise factor because this movie, you knew it was looking good. People wanted to see it, and now here, yeah, I'm not going to go. I don't have the answer to why the wait. I think my best guess that I can give is I think more and more people
1: are dealing with something akin to a franchise fatigue. And I don't think that's just limited to superhero movies nowadays. I think some movie franchises – actually, I think this is the case with every movie franchise. Every movie franchise has to contend with reaching a certain bubble – points reaching a certain pinnacle a peak a you get to a certain point where how can you grow that much more beyond this how how can you do that much more beyond this star wars you know has, has started to encounter i think the goose that lays the golden egg kind of different uh, kind story. of issue in a different way different way in a different way different problems but Everybody deals with it. That's the point there. Look at the Fast and Furious movies. You're going to have your fans who will, they will show up no matter what for those movies. But I think a lot of people, you're rolling your eyes at me. You and I feel the same way about those movies, Dave. We are among the people who I think when those movies reached their peak and in terms of viewership at the theater and interest in it, people reached their peak and went, another one? Again? You know, all, all of those things. Every franchise, I think, has to grapple with that and deal with that at a certain point, even if they're bringing in big money and getting a lot of people to come and see their movies. I think Mission Impossible is is facing much the same thing, where they have had a great run of movies, the last few movies. You and I have been in agreement about that. They have made some great movies. They have been entertaining action flicks. They've done very well at the box office. Now we've got another one that's coming along where... Yeah, you see some some great stunts, great stunts that were out there in the trailers. And I was planning to go see the movie in advance anyway. But it is also a part 1. It's a part 1 attached on to it. I think some of the some of the thought was is this the beginning of the end? Well, now we're kind of getting indications that no, this is not and unfortunately, the Mission Impossible might be starting to go the route of Fast and Furious where it's a Rather than a Vin Diesel-driven kind of franchise that has no signs of stopping, it's a Tom Cruise-driven franchise that has no signs of stopping attached onto it. Rather than a, this is like the beginning of the end kind of, kind of spectacle here that we're going to get. It's a, oh, it's just another, another marker in the journey of the Mission Impossible franchise. And you're going to keep people who are interested in the series... But you're going to lose people, I think, at a certain point, too, because you simply are just churning out new stories, different stories, but nothing that's really new that is demanding your attention to go and see it. And that, again, all of that is purely me giving a guess from what I see. But that, but that's what I'm seeing, I think, is more and more as the franchise formula continues to, to pile it along. And Mission Impossible is not as... It's not as new, quote-unquote, as it once was.
0: There are, Some of what you say I agree with. Some of what you say I don't agree and with. And
1: that's fine because I, I, yeah. think it, I think it's highly subject to debate. What I just yeah. laid out, all of that, I think is highly subject to debate. That's, that's just what I'm seeing based on what we've seen with superhero movies, what we've seen with large, large tentpole franchises that we have is that there comes a certain point where, you know, less can sometimes be more. I think James Bond taking a break right now. Not the worst thing in the world. Not you know, the worst thing. Speaking of another franchise where reinvention has happened time and time again, breaks are not always a bad thing.
0: And it might be about to happen again with a new Bond. It could be a new reboot like when Daniel Craig. But that's another story.
1: Right. Um, Look at Star Wars. Breaks in Star Wars ended up doing a lot for them. Twice. Twice it was the case. Now it's that's are, a whole are you overcooking story. the goose. That's yeah. a
0: whole other story. I think when you're talking about a franchise, you're talking about a couple of different, why is there another movie? Is it a money grab or is there really something to say here? I'll give you a really good example of something that is good for good's sake. When they were going to do this spin-off from the Karate Kid movies, Cobra Kai, I was like, eh, it seems interesting, but is it just some nostalgia thing where we're going to get these guys together, or do they really have something to say? My God, they've got something to say. And I don't know if you've seen the show, Cobra Kai. I've heard excellent things about it. Yeah. I haven't seen the newest season, but I've seen the four, I think, four seasons that have led up to the newest one. I haven't got a chance to watch the fifth, I think it is, most recent season, but so far it's awesome. And everybody that is still alive, Pat Morita is not, unfortunately, but he's still very much a part of this show in a lot of ways in spirit. They have something to do, and people are getting into this, and not just because of the quote-unquote legacy characters, but the new characters. They are building off of what came before and building something new, and it's excellent, and it's well done, and it's we got something to say here, and they know when they get to the end, they're going to be at the end. Stranger Things is hopefully going to take that lesson, too, because I don't think there's a whole lot more gas in the tank, and apparently this next season will be the last one. We'll see. Star Wars was a money grab. It'll, in some ways, it just was not well executed. Fast and the Furious, Vin Diesel needs some vacation villa money, and it's running thin. And well, I got to get the family back together and pad the wallet because these movies aren't that good. They're just not. There's a couple that are, and it's. And I'm not trying to knock it down. It's just. Let me put it this way. It's not my thing. I like. Um, some movies of a certain type and others I don't. And if, it, if it's a movie that you like and a franchise you like, that is awesome. There's some movies I love that are straight-up trash, and I love them. So that's okay. It's okay. If I don't like it and you do, that's okay. I don't like them. The Pirates of the Caribbean movies, to me, became what the fast, fast and the Furious movies have been. Some of them were really good, and others, nope. You could tell they just, you know, Johnny Depp liked playing the role. He needs some money for his weird, extravagant lifestyle. I best I guess they're going to put on the eye makeup again and put on the do-rag and get on a boat. It lost steam. It lost steam that started really good, and they just all got worse and worse and worse as they went forward, and in my opinion, so did Fast and the Furious, and then it was like Fast Five, I think it was. It really kind of revitalized it, and that's what they're still riding off of, but the steam is out of that one, and they're still going to keep going Well, forward. and
1: unfortunately, the death of Paul Walker and his final movie that he was in, that was, again... No,
0: un- I don't think it had anything to do with it. They were going to keep this going, because all these people want to get involved, whether they like each other or not, is a paycheck.
1: What I mean is people really showed up and showed out to go see that movie because that was after his death and they really wanted to see the final movie that had him in. But it was
0: more than that. It was that too, but I can think of a lot of movies where it turned out to be so-and-so's final movie and people just didn't care because they didn't care about the movie. They cared about the guy, but they didn't really care about the movie. Give me a reason to go and it's not just so-and-so's final movie. What was the the bank robber movie with uh, Robert Redford, the last one? That he did, or almost the last one he did. It wasn't like a box office sensation, even though old it's, man and the gun. Old man and the gun, there we go. It wasn't some box office smash because this is the last time you're gonna see so it just didn't matter. It was a good, fun, quirky movie, and it got a good response for what it was. But that's not what got people to go see the movie. If it's a good movie, great. But if it's just Redford or Paul Walker sitting in a chair picking his nose and telling stories, I don't think I'd want to see that. That's just the way it was. It found a way to revitalize, but it just isn't going. If you are doing something that is building something, or better yet, just this is another story, but it's a good story. James Bond does that. And many of those movies are not related to the next one. The problem is if you get into the Marvel Cinematic Universe, if you get into that Kiefer Sutherland show 24, or many others that are so built, where do you start? You can't watch this movie that you heard was good because you have to see the 15 that lead up to it because all these other storylines, you're not going to know where you are. And you can't start the season in the middle because you need to know. I don't want to do that. I just want to sit down and watch it. And one of the nice things about Bond is it doesn't matter if you start with Daniel Craig or Roger Moore or Sean Connery. They're all generally disconnected from one another until you get to the Craig movies and then they're a kind of a loose string. When it comes to the Mission Impossible movies, you didn't necessarily need to know all the background to get into it. They were, generally speaking, standalone movies, with the exception of maybe Ghost Protocol leading into Fallout, I think it was. Um, eh, Rogue Nation into Fallout. One of those two with the Syndicate. That was its own yes, kind of a thing. Yeah,
1: that was Rogue Nation into into Fallout.
0: But one of the benefits that came with along with this movie that might work against it, when they did Avengers uh, Infinity War, when it was coming out... It was kind of implied and it was somewhat secretive that that was going to end in a cliffhanger and that there was going to be a year later, the endgame. If you followed Hollywood, you kind of knew that was going to be the case. But generally speaking, it wasn't their front foot forward. You thought this was going to be the end of this long arc only to find out. Everyone or half the people are dead? What? You didn't know that was going to come. And then they showed a little preview of the next one, which would be Endgame, and that was coming out a year later. Maybe it would have benefited Mission Impossible if they just called it Dead Reckoning. And you didn't know that there was going to be a second part of Dead Reckoning, or just call it something not Dead Reckoning, and it's going to be a follow-up that's right after this. But here's the difference. A money grab would be, Lord of the Rings was great, let's do The Hobbit. It's just one book versus the three books, but let's make them all three movies and get people to basically pay to see The Hobbit movie in three parts three different times. The last Hunger Games movie, the last Harry Potter movie. You know, back to the future, let's do a sequel. They came up with a huge idea for a sequel that they only realized after they had kind of written it. This is too big for one movie. We're going to need to make two movies. We'll film them back to back. The Matrix 2 and 3 were like that. They didn't That's plan That's the risk on
1: that. of doing a part 1, part 2. But it was an
0: invol- we got to make it bigger and better and bolder than the, what has come before. We need to build this is you've built too much. This needs to be broken up. This is too much. That's not a money grab. That's trying to have a really good story to tell. And in most of those cases, maybe not the Matrix movies, um they were pretty decent follow-up stories and, you know, back to the future 2 and 3, I think were almost as good as the original. But this one, they clearly wrote a big story that I think some of the plot, I'm hoping some of the plot is going to be finally really kind of coming around into the part 2. Yeah. It's heavy on action, a little light on the plot, but if it's a part 1 and a part 2, I kind of reserve full, full judgment until I've seen both parts, because if it's both parts of a whole, then all right. But I liked part one. I really did. But it was a little thin.
1: Two significant issues. One, like you said, a little thin, because it felt like they stretched the story across the movie. Like They they really stretched the plot at the center of it across the whole movie, all leading into an end of the movie that has no cliffhanger whatsoever. It's just, that's the end of part one. This is what we're building toward. Like the, the completion of the mission is still out there for part two, but there's no, there's There's no no resolution. There's no, there's no super high stakes. It just feels like it's kind of, we we've gotten to the end of this week's episode. Tune in next week to see how it plays out. And there's no, there's no really high stakes that seem to be involved with how they left it. And, that's not going to get people coming back going, I want to see this a second time in theaters. I, I think that's another element to this. Is there? There's no, I got to go see that a second time. There's, all right, I've seen it. It's over with. And, there, and it's just, there wasn't really a whole lot, much like you described with Infinity War, Dave, where it's like, you're just floored at the end of the movie and going, wow, the stakes are enormous right now. It feels like they just kind of cut a very thinly stretched out plot in half and now it, we're we're gonna get what we get here with part two
0: coming it, up. You know, there's there's two different there's two different barometers for success at the movie theater. Is the movie any good? That's a big thing with me. You know, I don't care if people saw it and didn't like it. For I'll give you an example. We've mentioned this before. This isn't the first time we've mentioned it. Shaw Shank Redemption is one of the best movies. You and I, it's high on our list of all time greatest movies. That movie bombed at the box office. People didn't see it. They just didn't it was later when it was shown on cable all the time. What's this? Shaw Hubi's, who, it's a, what's a? And people started watching. This is a good movie. And you got to see this, Shaw And it caught on. And now it is one of the more beloved movies of all time, despite the fact it bombed at the box office. Terminator, Revenge, or um, um, uh, Transformers, Revenge of the Fallen is a bad movie. It just is not good. There's not a lot redeeming to it. But it's in the top 10 movies of whatever year that was, 2008 or whatever it was that it came out. People bought into the hype machine. They went and saw it. They didn't like it. But it was only after Hollywood had your money. So it's a successful movie, but it's not a good movie. So when it comes down to Mission Impossible could have done this better and this part didn't work and I didn't like the scene and that it wasn't that, that's great if you saw the movie and it and it, you didn't like it because of that. Then Hollywood's already got your money. This was a case of people didn't see the movie, because it didn't bomb, but everyone thought it was going to reach this, am- this amount, and it came in under that amount. So people, before the movie was even out, decided, nope. Franchise fatigue, having a, a
1: an entity like Barbenheimer the following weekend, and by the way, with Revenge of the Fallen, that movie benefited from being a sequel. It benefited from following up. The original movie, which got a lot of interest and brought the Transformers onto the big screen in the way that it did, you bring a lot of the band back together for the second movie, that brought a lot of attention, that brought a huge follow-up, and then people suddenly realized, oh no, this is starting to go downhill. We have hit the peak really early
0: here in this franchise. I could have told you from the trailers that that was going to be the case. You know, I wish uh, again if it's your thing then you go watch it you go enjoy it and don't think one thing about what this idiot's about to say but I wish there'd be more franchise fatigue for things like Fast and the Furious and Pirates of the Caribbean so they would shut it down and if they did another one it would be retooled while you know Mission Impossible those are good and even this one I do think as much as we said the movie could have been better I agree but I think, and we had other gripes with it too. Yeah, which we won't
1: get into here.
0: I think that you know the first two Mission Impossible movies are kind of their own thing. When J.J. Abrams got involved with the third one, they each, in my opinion, each one got better than the one before. I mean, it was, and then you get to Fallout, which was the most recent before this one, and it was wow. And then you come to Dead Reckoning, and it's still a good movie. I think it lost a step or two, but I would probably rank it as far as how the movie is somewhere around the third one, which was pretty good. Well, let's count them,
1: though. You have three. You have
0: Ghost Ghost Protocol. Protocol,
1: You have Rogue Nation, Nation Fallout. Fallout. This is Dead Reckoning Part One. That's five movies. That's a lot of movies. And...
0: But they've franchise? all been spread out over, like, 35 years, and the last one that came out was pre-COVID. I think it... I wanna, I'm want to. i not looking it it's, up, so I'm, I'm at 19, 2019? It's not,
1: it's not been quite that long now, Dave. It, it, like, if we're talking those five movies, it's been over about a...
0: No, when was the last year the movie came out before that? Was that 2019? That's what I meant to say. Oh, for the most recent one? Before yeah. this? I think it was, yeah. it was pre-COVID, so that's, Pre-COVID. that's four years.
1: But at the same time, this franchise... This franchise has been going for a bit, and sometimes you just you can't keep the momentum the same way, especially if you stick a part one on your title.
0: That's true, but the first one, 96, it was okay, and it, I, we've kind of talked about it passively. The second one in 2000 uh, was, I think, better, but in some ways not as much fun. Then the third one came, and it was like the revitalization of it. This is different from what has come before, and it's really good. And then Ghost Protocol came out after that, and that was like Guys, you need to see this one. This is good. People paid attention, people went, people listened, and Mission Impossible really became a staple again.
1: I just thought this was going to be the end, and it doesn't seem like it's going to be the end now. All right, so it was a great weekend. Barbenheimer obviously a big part of why, a huge part of why it was a great weekend. And this is where we'll finish out the episode is discussing that it comes at a time where Hollywood kind of needed something good because we have two strikes that are going on at the same time we have the producer strike that's taking place right now right now and or wait no the writer writer strike strike. producer strike was resolved or that was the director strike it was one of the other the writer strike is going on right now in hollywood still going on and now we have the screen actors guild and their strike that has also kicked in which dave and i alluded to the last episode that was imminent it is now underway and it is off and running What's going on with this strike? Why is this taking place? As we discussed in the last episode, and we don't have to rehash too much of it. Yeah, a lot of this is about the the quote unquote middle class of of actors and and the the lower levels of of the Screen Actors Guild as well. But there there are some implications for some of those who earn at the at the highest levels and the biggest part. The union that's involved here has said the key issues in this negotiation include artificial intelligence as well as compensation from streaming. Those are the two big things that are part of why they have been willing to strike over this. And they're so important that they wanted to go through a full labor stoppage to be able to make this happen. And those are two very, very enormous ones. Now, of course, the the money, the compensation, that is anytime there's a strike involved, that's always going to be At the center of it. But those are two major things. And those are two things, Dave, that between COVID and all that happened then and the increase in technology and the advancements in technology that we have, they are very, very significant topics that clearly the Screen Actors Guild is trying to make sure get addressed. And that is why we have an impasse on two levels now. Within Hollywood.
0: And that in and of itself, two simultaneous strikes from two of the major guilds that run Hollywood. This hasn't happened in over a half a century. 1960, I think it was. Future President Ronald Reagan was the president of the Screen Actors Guild when the last time this was a double strike. So that's significant. This hasn't happened in over half a century. So this is something that is absolutely huge and significant, and it has essentially shut Hollywood down. Because if you had a completed script, you could shoot, but now you need somebody to shoot the script, and you don't have that either. Um, there are some minor exceptions. Reality TV is one. Funny enough, uh, A24 was working on a movie, and they are the guild is allowing actors to work on it because A24 went along with anything that they were asking for. They're like, "Yeah, we'll we'll do what you want to do." You know, we're just one small tiny corner. All right. You guys can finish the thing. You guys are the exception. So there's something to be said about this. But I'm also hearing a lot it's of. It's been a highly successful studio, by the way. Yeah, true. I am, but they're they're playing fair. It sounds like, and that's kind of the point. So, but I'm also hearing a lot of misconstruity about the Well, they made 20 million last movie. I'm not care about their stupid strike. This isn't about the highest, you know, paid—the one percenters, so to speak. You know, Tom Cruise is doing just fine. This is not about Tom Cruise kicking up his paycheck, but you will see big named, well paid actors on the line striking not for themselves necessarily. They're really sticking up for the younger guys, the smaller faces that you don't recognize when you on see on behalf
1: of the collective. Yes acting guild.
0: Yes. So you might see Tom Cruise on the picket line. I don't know if he has been or not. I'm just coming up with a name. Brian He's, Cranston is one yeah, I can think. Yeah, Brian Cranston's one that you can say that about and others as well where they have shown up and they're speaking for the people that you wouldn't know their face if they stood up. It's some random guy talking. He kind of looks familiar, but I but Brian Cranston will look familiar. He's standing up to speak for these other people. And I'm sure Cranston's doing just fine financially. I'm sure he hasn't made the $20 million paycheck yet, but I'm sure that would come at some point, I hope, because he's certainly worth it. This is about um, financials, yes, but two things in particular. First of all, there's something that are called residuals, and this can get a little down the rabbit hole, so I won't go too deep. If you really want to look into it, I'd suggest look it up online. You can learn about it. But um, just like in music, when you play a song by the Beatles, let's say those that own the rights to the Beatles, which unfortunately isn't the Beatles – it's you know whatever it used to be Michael Jackson actually that owned the catalog and now it's I think Sony owns the catalog I can't remember it's changed a little bit recently but whoever owns that catalog they'll get not a lot but they'll get a little something well think about every Beatles song that plays anywhere ever in the world at any time that is could be you know a couple of dollar a couple of dollars a couple of coins every time. But that's a bunch of lo- every times, every single day. That's going to add up in a major, major way. When you are an actor and you're on a show and, it's, and Netflix decides they want to buy the rights to air the Back to the Future trilogy, let's say, those that own what are called points on that movie, whether that's the producers, the directors, some of the actors that were high enough into stature and standing that they get a little piece of the action, then every time you rent Back to the Future, every time you, have it, you pay to get the rights to stream it for a month or two on Netflix or or whatever every time the DVD gets sold, those people are going to get ka ka-ching, ka-ching. Spielberg had a part to do with that. He's going to get a little something, something. But maybe there's some people that aren't getting any of that action, and they think they probably should, especially since maybe they did get some sort of a cut when you would go to Blockbuster, but Blockbuster doesn't exist anymore. And the studios are trying to cut people out of streaming, which has kind of cut people out of that loop. That was an income source I had, even though it was just a couple of dollars every so many, you know, so often from the Blockbuster. But now it's, streaming and you're trying to tell me i don't deserve any of that this
1: is part of the new frontier that is coming with streaming is that you have a lot of this gray area a lot of this unknown that's in there one of the big things that has been unknown is viewership numbers and the data that comes with them and then what They're kind very of very tight lips? yes what kind of payments are coming from those viewership numbers and going to the streaming platform and involved here and there's been a lot of clutching that's been going on by by those streaming platforms of keeping that data very close to the vest it's for their benefit when it comes to the general public and i think it's also to their benefit when it comes to those who are involved in the projects that that these that these streaming services do look at some of the big named actors who have been involved in in making Streamed content. It's it's surprising sometimes when you see, hey, this person's on Apple TV and doing stuff there. Hey, this this person is is going through Netflix and doing a movie through there. It's rather surprising sometimes when you see who all is is getting involved with things like that. But then the problem is, how are they going to get compensated when studios have been have been rather rather tight lipped on. You know, this is the data, this is the information, and then this is what you ought to be properly compensated for it all from. And
0: this is not a surprise that this was coming. When COVID really hit and they started to do these day-and-date releases, as part of the original contracts for doing such-and-such a movie, depending on how well the movie did at the box office, there were bonuses that could be paid out. Well, if you don't play it in the theaters, and granted there was a pandemic going on at the time and there was no theaters to go to for a while, those contracts were... They were sold in one way and presented in another way. Well, there's no way you could make these bonuses now because you're not releasing it in a theater. You took this movie, and rather than just let's wait and we'll release it when you can release it, it went immediately to streaming services. And there were some instances where theaters would make a different thing. Look, I know this isn't in your contract, but we're going to give you a million-dollar bonus because it's not going to make the bonus levels, but we just feel that you're worthy of it, so here you go. And others weren't. And even on the same film, some people were decided to be worthy of bonuses and others weren't. That riled a lot of feathers because it wasn't like it was some sort of a uniform across the board or anything. It was, let's just call it exceptionally selective. Well, what about the, it's nicer when it's in your contract and it's worked out and theaters or I shouldn't say theaters, but studios and the producers are kind of close together in this. They were keeping a lot – that money went somewhere, and it didn't go to a lot of the people that made the movies, but maybe call it the upper 1% of the producers and and the studio executives, and that's another problem. Another aspect of this that isn't really coming around is A.I., Now, apparently, studios made some sort of an offer recently that sounds like it was just primarily financial. Hey, we made a really good contribution. Well, to come up with a round number, let's say there's four big issues. That addresses one of them, not the other three. It doesn't have anything to do with the rest. Maybe it was a nice, generous offer financially, maybe, but it had nothing to do with the other three. AI is another thing, and AI is artificial intelligence, and it's kind of a new thing. And a lot of us don't really, truly, fully understand what it all means, and that's because it's very broad. Which is also
1: a rather dangerous place to be in, too, because it goes back to the Jurassic Park idea of just because you have access to it or you can do it, should you really do it? Should you really go ahead with that? Which, hey going back to Oppenheimer a little bit, talking about making the bomb, you know, all, all of that. The, that idea, basically, is in the back of the mind with AI, isn't it?
0: You know, one of the things that some of us are learning around the pandemic time was that when people weren't coming into work, a lot of businesses struggled, and a lot of people that get paid the most are the people on the upper, upper echelons of the company. Those people were still at work, so to speak, doing what they did because they, didn't, they weren't boots on the ground, per se. But companies struggled because the boots on the ground... Those people, they weren't in the company. They were not working in the restaurants. They weren't whatever. And those places started to go belly up. It kind of started to ask the question, who are the most important people in those companies? Are they the executives that make top dollar? Because now they're the only ones that are technically doing their job. But it's the people that are actually there that are not there. They're the ones getting paid the least. But it seems to me maybe they should be getting paid maybe the most because they seem to be the most crucial. When you're talking about Hollywood, labor costs have always been one of the highest costs of business. Whether that's making movies, whether that's building a scooter, it doesn't matter. It's the cost of the, of the labor. And in Hollywood, those are the writers. Those are the set designers. Those are the computer programmers, if you're talking a lot of CGI. Those are the actors. Those are the people that are going to take a significant amount of the budget. What if you could make a movie and a computer that basically does its own thing. You don't need people to do it because it's artificial intelligence. It can write its own script. It can cast its own movie and even bring back people that are dead and make them look just like the actual person. Sounds per-
1: like chat GPT or steroids This or gets a little
0: creepy yeah. when you start thinking about yeah. it. But don't kid yourself that this is absolutely on the table. And the studios are putting forth stuff that does not factor this in at all. And the actors and the writers can see the writing on the wall. You guys are going to create stuff without us.
1: It's cheap creation. It's cheap labor.
0: It's, we need to get content Designs on our streaming labor. service, which to me baffles the mind. There's so much out there. It's not that it's available. It's that it's not presented in such a good way. And it's bizarre to me that, just look at Disney for an example. They are the largest media company on Earth. After the Fox merger with 20th Century Fox, they own more media content than any other company on Earth. So they own anything that Disney and their subsidiaries ever did, and everything that 20th Century Fox, which had been around for darn near 100 years, that's a heck of a lot of content. Bob Iger's not been having a good few weeks, by the way. They're pulling content off of all kinds of different stuff, which to me, why would you not go the opposite? I mean, if it's your content and you own it, where's the cost really in digitizing it and making it available? For a long time, Disney had their vault system. They would have like Pinocchio, let's say, and they just wouldn't have it available for purchase anywhere until all of a sudden they would pull it out of the vault for a limited time. You can buy it only now, but in like six months, it's going to go away and it'll be back in the vault. And who knows when it's going to come? So if you ever want to buy it, you got to buy it now. And there's that way of thinking, but I think that's pretty archaic. And if you just don't want to give me content to watch, then I won't watch your content. I'll go to somewhere else, and you'll watch Disney you know, Shrink Up or anybody else. If you are Comcast, why isn't every show, every movie, everything you own not available right now? This is the era of demand. This is the era of now. You're talking about content Why is it all buried in a vault? I mean, if you own the rights to it, put it out there. Yeah. And it's how you show it. It's how you market it. It's how you deliver it. You can make something that's 100 years old look spectacular. you never seen this movie, and it's one of the best. You and your family can gather around the TV and watch It's a Wonderful Life or whatever. I don't get it.
1: Yeah, the big wigs in the industry are really catching a lot of criticism right now because that I mean, being on that side, I mentioned Bob Iger. He called the strike quote very disturbing, called the demands of the union quote just not realistic, said that it's all going to quote have a very very damaging effect on the whole business. Yeah, Bob, it's going to have a pretty big effect on your very large paycheck that you get for being the CEO of Disney. And it's not just been him. I mean, we—you mentioned several months ago, Dave, about what David Zaslav has done with uh, Warner Brothers and Warner Brothers Discovery with some of these projects that they had just about finished that were pulled off the table, and then other series and movies from Max that they that they pulled out of there. Batgirl, most notice, most notably among there, that got a lot of people riled up too. And it it just it speaks to the enormous divide between. Those who are making the creative things happen in Hollywood on the ground level and those who are making these decisions in the, the higher up levels of these various production companies who, by the way, are making a ton of money. And the
0: ratio is wh- – I mean, I think some of those people enormous. on the top of the tower absolutely deserve to make probably a, lot, a little bit more money. But the the problem, though, is you go back far enough. You go back to, say, like the 1950s, and the ratio between the top earners and the bottom earners compared to what that same ratio is now is gargantuan. And that's where the
1: streaming element is such a significant one because there are question marks of – is there fair compensation that is coming from what is happening with streaming, or is it going in the pockets of the higher-ups of these companies way more than those who are making all of this possible? So these questions are going to have to be resolved. There, There's going to have to be a real facing the music kind of moment that's going to happen here all around. Like. We don't know. According to what was floated out there from one source, um, I think this was according to the studios, there was a deal. They claim that the Screen Actors Guild walked away from a deal that would have given them $1 billion in compensation and benefits increases. That's what they're saying. Is there truth in it? I don't know. It's a part of a they said, they said kind of thing that's, that well, we've got going on here this, on the strike line.
0: And it's not just about money. I mean, at the bottom line, it's about money. But even more than that, if AI is going to do your job for you, you're not going to need you and you're not going to get paid doing what you do as an actor. And so it kind of comes down to money, too, because you won't have a job anymore. It, it's and can AI really do it? I'm not interested in that, honestly, and because it's not about, well, let's just see what AI can do. What it really is is how can we make these as dirt cheap as possible? We can cut out the writers. We don't need them anymore. We don't need these high-paid actors anymore because we're just going to have these pretend people. We'll just program the computer to make the most sexy face you've ever saw and the best dialogue. It isn't going to work that way. It just isn't. It just isn't. So if we can make them cheap and make a crap load of money then we're going to make out like bandits and that's all that they're looking at
1: well i i'm going to go back to a lesson that i that i keep thinking about when it comes to the realm of sports which i'm very connected into and i think is one that applies here and attaches on to lessons that we talked about earlier in the in this episode it's that how important is it to find new money in, in your industry and and how you go about it Like, in sports, the world of sports, it's a constant thing of we've got to go overseas. We've got, like, the NFL, for instance. How do we create more revenue? Well, what if we had a team in London? What if we created a franchise that existed in London? That is crazy on a lot of levels, on a lot of logistical levels. That makes no sense. But what they are seeing at the highest level is that this is a way to be able to make more money. This is a way for us to be able to make more money. But you rarely
0: hear, just use your sports metaphor... Take a team like the Dallas Cowboys, and I'm just going to make up numbers for the sake of argument. You go back 20 years ago, the Dallas Cowboys cost a million dollars. Now they're a billion dollars. How could it rise that much in that short amount of time? Is that some sort of artificial inflation? And it's not just the Cowboys. It's any random team. It's any random league. It's any t- random general. This is what the market is paying for now. Is it being artificially inflated and being hoarded by a select few?
1: It's, it stands to reason that you would think so with some of the owners – that are out there that maybe like but they see it as let's just get more. We want more. Rather than being content with like absolutely. Right. Content, they want more. Being content with this is growing naturally on its own. How important is it for you to to grow it in in a way that says we got to do things that are kind of unreasonable. I think the same thing applies here when it comes to making movies. We have talked in this episode about appreciating two directors who have Really painstakingly crafted, creative films, and and have put them together, and how the, these movies at their best. A lot of people, I think, are seeing through the fact that a lot of movies these days are the result of. Market uh, marketing slash what kind of dollars are we going to get out of this, and let's create a movie that if it hits this demographic and hits this demographic and has this and has this and it has market research attached to it, we project that we're going to pull in this kind of money because based on our research, if you have this element and this uh, it's exhausting because all it has then is it it it's a think tank movie that's been put together rather than by committee, by committee rather than something that has a, a creative angle to it, a creative touch to it. And that will ma- it will make its money. Then if you build it, they will come it, it that has that kind of element to it. And what's happened is these studios have gotten I think lost in the trance of that and the money making marketing like the all the money side of it and have lost sight of it's the creative piece it's the creative element that is that is so important. Yes, you need to have your marketing research. Yes, you need to have you need to have those things. How much are they driving what is what you are doing and what you're making? And you have to understand that people People are going to make that happen. Really good, talented actors are going to make that happen. Really good, talented cinematographers, writers, costume people, the people who are going to make your scores for your movie, the, who's, who's composing the music, the directors, like all of those things. The writers are on the picket line right now, too. You need creative people who are going to make all of this happen. You, it, you're you not just going to churn it out and you have to be willing you have to be willing to put something out in order to get something back. And that's what these CEOs, that's what these people at the very highest levels of these studios and corporations have to understand is that if you want to do it right and you want to be appreciated, I mean, it's been a terrible week for PR for some of them. Bob Iger, I'm looking at you.
0: Well, he's gotta learn when to zip it.
1: Yeah, and you, you need to understand you're going to have to give something. To get something. And a lo- you may not get the kind of bucks back that maybe you want, but a lot of people are going to appreciate what you're creating out that's, of it and that's the feeling true. that comes with it.
0: But if you're making $12 billion every year, why would you want to do the same job for 10 or 8? Because you maybe should, quote unquote, give some back so there's a little bit more to go around. So some people that are built into that mindset, they ain't going to do it. My money. I'm not giving you $2 billion off my $12 billion check because it's my money. That's what it comes down to. What a, th- what a show really is, whether that's big screen or old world vaudeville, people are going to pay to go see your product if you give them a reason to do it. And if it's no good, they're not going to go see your product anymore. So it's got to be a balancing act between the artistic side and the business side. If it's just artistic and it's just something that's not really going to draw something in, but it's extremely artistic, but not, you may not get the business out of it. But you need to have the business. But if it's just, we want you to come into the room and give us money to come into the room, and if the thing that we're trying to get you into the room to see isn't all that good – Hey, we got your money, that's all that matters. Then they're not going to come back. You've got to be a balancing act. And when it comes to the studio and the executives and the producers, they're kind of on one side of the equation. Not all of them, some of the producers are absolutely worthy in wanting to build a creative product. But the producer, for those who don't understand how films make, they are generally the engine that runs this thing. Everybody that's on the film works for the producer. They hire the directors. And sometimes they're the same person. Spielberg is a well-known director. He's also a producer. So some of them wear multiple hats. Um, So we're not obviously talking about all of them. They're going to be the ones that are primarily going to look at it from a business standpoint. And artistic is a means to an end for as many of them. If we can get people in the door, that's all that matters. We'll just hype it up. It's a horrible movie. It's just, it's. there's nothing good and redeeming about it. It doesn't matter. We got to get him in here. And then we got to find a reason to make him want to come see the sequel and then the next sequel. And it's a money, 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 money thing. And that's where, in my opinion, Pirates of the Caribbean is gone. That's where, in my opinion, all these redos for Disney and squeezing every juice out of everything they've already had and others like it. And then you get something that's extremely creative. Now, it might be a Mattel toy, but holy creativity to make this work. I, You know there will be a Barbie, too.
1: I like that we finished on this macro topic, and it's a very current events macro topic, because, Dave, I think some of the current events micro topics that we've discussed within the midst of this episode, they, they provide, I think, much-needed clarity to this macro topic of the strikes and the, the current state of – Hollywood, well, it's nice to the entertainment industry,
0: the bad and the, the movie good.
1: industry. Yeah, and sometimes I think you can find lessons within the midst of that. Sometimes I think you can find the light in the midst of that. It's just a question of do other people see it that way, and are they other people who are part of the decision-making process? And that's, I think, where we're going to see this strike either persist or or find its find its end and its you, resolution.
0: You know, I and I think. And I certainly don't want to get political here, but I think you got to call it what you see. Is that uh, I think the whole Hollywood strike is a microcosm. Just this morning, we're recording this on Wednesday, July 26th. That's when we're recording this. As of this morning, it seems that there's a tentative strike uh, hold off from the UPS. I don't know if you heard about this, but UPS was about to go on strike uh, for similar reasons. And they're not the only ones. It's not just Hollywood. It's not just UPS. and Broadway,
1: by the way. Broadway.
0: And it has nothing to do with entertainment. This is something where it's been a long time coming, where there's still as much money in the world as there ever was. It's just a question of, call it, a really weird episode of hoarders. The money is being held up by a small group of people and that's it. And they still want more and they still want more on top of that. And then a little more on top of that. And that'll never end. Well, there's only so much to go around and there's only so many more people. It's just not out there. This is going to be Hollywood or not Hollywood. This is This is the tip of the iceberg. And that iceberg is getting a little taller above the water. A lot of things could get shut down, whether that's AI, whether it's pay financial disparity, which is more egregious now than it has ever been in US economic history um, it's it's bizarre something needs to be reworked and reset um, yeah, It's just need, not sustainable you need creative driving people at, at the very top you need that to
1: be able to make to make things work the question the question is what are they doing with their money where is their money going is it trickling down effectively enough are they seeing that and no. and that's where a lot of the disparity is
0: you got to get people that really care about more than just a paycheck. And that's on all sides of the fence. The executives, the actors, you know, there's so many so many examples of an actor that will get paid like nothing. Because they just want to work with this director. I don't care. Jonah Hill doing uh, The Wolf of Wall Street. I think he got paid, like, a couple of boxes of Cracker Jacks to do the movie. Because he just wanted to work with that cast. And he wanted to work with that crew. And he wanted to work with Scorsese. I don't care where you throw me. Just put me. I want to do this. Anytime, any any cost, I don't care. You're not going to see that from an executive. Maybe a Spielberg somebody would take less. You know, I know Spielberg donated every dollar he made from Schindler's List because he didn't want, quote-unquote, blood money. It wasn't about the money for him. It was a very personal story. It was extremely about uh, something that he was compelled to do and didn't take a nickel from it, not one. And if there's DVD royalties or sales, Spielberg, if he gets something – it's donated. If Elton John gets money from a single, it goes to the AIDS charity. He doesn't take a, a nickel from any single that he sells. Albums are another story. Um, and I don't think if singles are really a thing anymore, but still, he does pretty good for that. Those are people that clearly care. Those are people that want to see things get better and see the the industry, whatever that industry is, move forward. If you get too many people that are all about what can this do for me, entertainment or otherwise, that's where it just gums up the works, and I think we've reached a point, not just in Hollywood but everywhere, of critical mass. Bottom line:
1: we're not going to have Barbenheimer moments. We're not going to have movies hitting the the Darn big it. screen. We're not going to have new content coming along as long as the, these strikes continue with the writers, with the actors. They are well. There's
0: there's plenty in the coffers that have already been done and already been made. Yes, but once we start getting into twenty twenty four. You know, and even sooner on TV because it's about midsummer that they start filming the next season that would debut in the fall. They'd be right. filming that stuff now. You're going to feel that when fall comes. It's going to be kind of a slowly rolled out process. And the longer this goes out, the deeper and the longer out it's going to be. So when we start talking about when we get around to doing summer previews for 2024, it might resemble COVID a little bit where maybe things aren't coming out. Yeah, that's part of this reality.
1: And, you know what? Everybody loses then. Everybody, Everybody loses. Rick and Nick Talk Flicks is sponsored by the Bemidji Theater on Highway 2, just down from the airport. Lots of current stuff for discussion in our episode today. Uh, lots of different angles to cover with it all, too.
0: Nice chatting with you over Coffee Hoof.
1: Yeah, this was a lot of fun. Uh, well, not so fun on the back end with some of the realities of the kind strike of that we have. But, hey, um, we had... We got to see a really good movie. You and I both did this past weekend when we got to go see Oppenheimer.
0: Highly recommend it. Go see it. Go see Barbie. And if anything, whether it's a big release or some random obscure, I don't know, but it looks interesting. Go see it. Go find it where it's playing and go see it. Especially if it's at the Bemidji Theater, right off of Highway Two between Bemidji and Wilson. Tell uh, Missy and crew we said hi. In fact, Missy, Missy sold me my ticket to go see Oppenheimer. Yes, yeah, it's been it's been fun stopping in there the last few weeks. So. Yeah.
1: Until next time, I'm Joel Hoover. I'm Dave Brooks, and we will see you at the movies.